Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. What is your destiny and what is greatness? Destiny calls. You know, when we look at our history, we have many great leaders that we have followed because God has put them at the right place at the right time, and they've answered the call of destiny. Shakespeare puts it in the mouth of Malvolio as he tells Olivia about greatness. He says, do not be afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. And others have greatness, what? Thrust upon them. That's what we find in today's passage of Scripture, I think, in Isaiah the sixth chapter. In our nation's history, you think about the great leaders. George Washington, well, why was he great? What was his destiny? Well, God had been preparing him for many years. As a surveyor, he knew the land that he fought on. He had fought on much of that land in the French and Indian Wars as a seasoned soldier. Later, he was a man of no party during the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, even though he wanted a strong central government. But one of the greatest things that he did was something that he didn't do, and that was that he chose not to run for a third term. He did not want to establish a monarchy. Lincoln, if you stop and think about him, his greatness, he was a man of humility and great wisdom. I think he was, he typified that scriptural passage where the Lord tells us to be wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. Eloquent, but one of his greatest characteristics was he was a civilian. In a war between great armies, he was a civilian leader that called his generals to accountability. One of his things about, one of his aspects of greatness is what he didn't do. He thought that he would never be remembered. Remember at the Gettysburg Address, he said, the world will not long remember what we do here today, how wrong he was. Yesterday, we added four names to the wall, memorial wall, for the Vietnam conflict, the Vietnam War. Out of Mineral Wells, we've got a miniature wall there. And each year we add names as they add names to the wall in Washington. There is such a thing as anonymous greatness. Nobody knew the names of Andrew J. Smith and Larry R. Tenda and Paul A. Avalese and Alva R. Krogman that we added to the wall yesterday, but they were great. And in fact, it's one of Lincoln's phrases from that Gettysburg Address that we often use on occasions like this. They gave their last full measure of what? Devotion. His words are still remembered. Think about Churchill and his greatness. What is he remembered for? He was a bulldog. He was perseverant. He reversed the attitude of defeatism and appeasement that ran through England in 1939, and he rallied the nation to war to oppose Hitler. He was resilient. There was something he didn't do, and that was the source of his greatness. He never 
never, 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 never gave in. You remember that speech. Think about the great leaders of World War II. George Marshall, many of you have not heard of him, but George Marshall, if it were not for him, I would say that we would have been in jeopardy of not winning that war. You see, he was the man that Roosevelt commissioned to rebuild the army because of his organizational, administrative, and logistical genius. He put together division after division after division that went into battle at Normandy. And you know, it was something that he did not do that made him great. Roosevelt gave him a choice. He said, you can go and you can lead the invasion. You can be the supreme allied commander of all forces in Europe. And with that, of course, would come great glory. And as we saw with Eisenhower later, a presidency. Or you can stay here in Washington and continue to do what you do as the Army Chief of Staff. And I want you to stay here, but I give you the choice. And he chose greatness by doing what? What his president asked him to do. Later, of course, he is, great. he is great because he is the source of the human source and planning for the rebuilding of Europe and the Marshall Plan. You see, some leaders are born, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them because of where God brings them at the intersections of destiny. You know, God invites us to worship, to walk with him, and to worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we've discovered over the last couple of three weeks, we need to be very careful about that. We do not just flippantly walk into his presence. We come into his presence with awe. We come into his presence aware of our sinfulness. We come into his presence asking this great God of forgiveness to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness if we do indeed confess our sins as we have this morning. And then when he does that and he makes us clean, he then draws near to us and he commissions us to further worship. And that further worship is then to leave here and to go out and to tell others about him. Isaiah shows us how this destiny was thrust upon him. And he tells us about God's call to greatness in his life. Isaiah, the sixth chapter will remain seated this morning as we read it, the first eight verses. In the year of King Uzziah's death, <clears throat> I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then I said to myself, yes, woe is me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
And then I said, here am I, send me. It was the year of Uzziah the king's death, about 740 B.C. He was a good king. He had ruled prosperously and well for 52 years. But he had done one thing that had displeased the Lord. He had decided that he could go into the temple, into the holy place, and offer incense on the altar in the holy place. And for that reason, he was struck down with leprosy, and he spent the rest of his years in COVID. No, he spent the rest of his his years in isolation. And his son was co-regent, Jotham, and he ran the kingdom. The irony of this is, it is in that very temple where he had violated the commandment of the Lord that Isaiah now stands, and he comes into contact with the great God. The situation in northern Israel is desperate. There have been 17 bad kings over two centuries. They have been fully idolatrous and corrupt. And now Pekah, in this very same year that Uzziah dies, then usurped the throne in 740. The next to the last king of Israel, there were three more usurpers over the next 12 years. There was great instability, and of course we know eventually Assyria then overran the northern ten tribes and scattered them in 722 B.C. The situation in Judah was different. Jotham was a good king. He was ruling during prosperous times, and he ruled for another nine years. Judah became a vassal of of Assyria, and they served Assyria under the yoke of oppression until then, eventually, they tried to throw it off. Seven of the next nine kings, however, were bad kings. They were corrupt, and God knew this was going to happen. They knew that they would promote idolatry over the next hundred or so years. They knew that their kings and priests would become false shepherds. They knew, he knew that they would abuse their power. He knew that they would exploit the people. And so he sends Isaiah to proclaim a prophetic message of judgment upon Judah. God's judgment would fall upon not only the northern ten tribes through Assyria, but he calls Isaiah then to proclaim a very unpopular message to Judah. He tells them, You will harden your hearts, you will become deaf, you will become blind to the message of the Lord, and as a result of that, the cities will be devastated, the land will become desolate and despoiled, and the houses will become empty. You will become exiled to a foreign country, but a faithful remnant will return, and that remnant will become the seed for future salvation. But you see, this message was unpopular to which Isaiah was called. But this evangelist of the Old Testament then met his destiny of greatness when God called him to be his prophet. In this message today, we see that God's call for us is missional. God's call is not only missional, it is risky business. It can be dangerous. God's call is not only missional and risky, it is a personal call to each one of us to greatness. And God's call is compelling. God's call is missional, first of all. You see, it fits into his eternal plan of redemption to repair his relationship with fallen mankind and to heal and restore all creation. It falls into his eternal plan to restore true worship. All creation, not just humankind, but all of creation once again walking in harmony with God. You see, worship, as we have said, 
is responding to God's invitation to come and to walk with him. But that invitation to come leads to a command to go. Go and speak for me. This begins for Isaiah at the moment of worship in the temple. He sent, that is God, not only ask him to come to him and to be forgiven and to be cleansed, but then to go out from the temple. He charged Isaiah then to tell this message to the people. And we, as we meet God in his greatness, in a worship service, are called to do the same thing. We are called to go forth and to proclaim his word missionally to a desperate, dark, and dying world. We saw this in what we sang a few moments ago, O worship the King. O worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his what? His love. O tell, O tell, speak, communicate, broadcast, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, thy bountiful care. What tongue can recite? We are called to recite and to rehearse and to tell again the bountiful care of God to a world that has lost sight of him. It breathes in the air. It shines in the light. You see, we are called to come and worship him, and then we are called to take that worship into the world and to tell and to recite, just as Isaiah did. There are many biblical examples of this missional call in Scripture. Responding to God's call, it began with Abram. Think about Abram the pilgrim. He was called to be a pilgrim. God said, now the Lord said to Abram, what? Go, go forth, go forth to a country that I will show you. Leave your relatives, leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show to you. You see, he was called to go as a pilgrim. Samuel at Shiloh, called as God's servant. Samuel, Samuel, the third time he calls Samuel, and how did Samuel respond? Speak, for your servant is listening. Called as God's servant. Ananias, after Saul was struck on the road to Damascus, the prophet was called as God's healer. Ananias, God spoke to him, and Ananias responded, Here I am, Lord, and he was called to heal Saul of his blindness. Jesus sent. He called and then he sent the twelve. He called and then sent the seventy, just as he calls and sends us today. The Great Commission fits into God's redemptive plan. It's a part of this greatness to which he calls us. There are actually three versions of it in Scripture, and there are three different dimensions to this call. You see, in Mark, we're told he tells his disciples to do what? To as preachers, as proclaimers, go and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. At the end of Luke, in the beginning of Acts, he tells his apostles, he gives them a different focus. He says, you're called to be my what? To be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not even in just Samaria, but to the what? Uttermost parts of the world. And Matthew's gospel, it's the one that we often quote in Matthew 28, he calls us to be what? To be teachers to be disciples. As you go, disciple all nations. You see, this call takes on different dimensions. It's one call with many different functions. I don't know what God's calling you to as he calls you to your destiny this morning to continue worshiping him. But in scripture, he called us to do many things. 
Maybe one of these is yours. He called us to be heralds of the king. Later in Isaiah, in the 52nd chapter, he says, How beautiful are the feet of him who does what? Who brings good news, who heralds, who proclaims peace, who announces salvation and says, Your God reigns. Maybe you are a herald for God. We're called in 2 Corinthians 5 to be what for Christ? Ambassadors for Christ. Jesus called his disciples to be what? Fishers of men. He also calls us and he called them to be workers in the field of the harvest. One sows, he said, and another reaps. Paul later put it this way to the Corinthians. Some plant, maybe you're a planter. And then some water, maybe you're a waterer. And maybe some of you are the ones that give the increase. No, he says, who gives the increase? Only God gives the increase. Some are called to be stewards of the master's house, to be those that go to the highways and the byways and into the hedges to invite people to come into the king's banquet. Some are called to be priests. We're all called to be priests because we're part of a royal priesthood to build up God's house and to offer spiritual sacrifices, to proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of the one that called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. Some are called, no, we're all called to be friends of Jesus. He said to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves. I now call you friends, and what do I want you to do then? You see, you didn't choose me. I called you. You didn't choose me. I selected you. I appointed you, and I appointed you that you would go and do what? And bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. Some of these things we all do. Some of these maybe only you do. But God has called you to a moment of destiny in worshiping him to fulfill his call as a missional call. God's call is missional. God's call is also risky, even, I might say, dangerous. God warned Isaiah after this. You know what, Isaiah? They're not going to listen to you. They're going to be deaf. They're going to be blind. They're going to resist the reformation that I'm calling for. And they had reason to. They had just reason in their mind to resist the call. You see, it was an unpopular message. The fashionable ladies of Jerusalem would lose all they had. They would be humbled. The land would become fruitless. The homes would become desolate. Leaders' bodies would litter the streets. Mighty men would fall by the sword. That's what he then tells Isaiah is going to happen. It was an unpopular message. You know, when we're called to be whatever God calls you to be, a herald in the priesthood, Whatever your function is, you have a message to communicate to the world. And that message is not always popular. That message does not always meet with immediate success either, in human terms. It didn't with Isaiah. He preached his message, and then he died. And how many years did it take for the remnant to return after he died? 140 years. You see, sometimes the message isn't popular, and sometimes we do not even see the results of the seeds that we plant. You know, when history recounts this in the Bible, there are two ways that we see God rejecting his message. In the days of Noah, what did they do? They laughed at him, and they mocked at him, and they made fun of him. That's the popular story. But you know what? You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. That's a myth. Oh, they may have, but it's not scriptural. We don't have evidence of that. What did they do? 
We find from the New Testament that they went along their merry way and they ate and they drank and they had a good time and they actually paid no attention. You see, that is the world we live in today. We proclaim the message and it meets with what? Massive indifference. That's almost worse than people opposing us. There's another way, of course, that this message is met for those people of destiny that are missional, and that is persecution. In 2 Chronicles, we're told, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, that is Zion. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God, the Lord God, was against his people. Until there was no remedy, Jesus said that we are to be blessed when we're persecuted. Why? Because so they persecuted the prophets that came before us. He says to Jerusalem, 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 who kills the prophets and stones them that are sent to her. That's the other way that the message is met, with persecution and with ridicule. And Jesus warned his disciples, if you respond to my message, if you take this missional message into the world, I will be sending you amongst what? Like lambs among wolves. They will hand you over to the courts. They will scourge you. Brother will betray brother. A child will betray father unto death. And parents will betray their children. You will be hated by all because of my name. What did this, what did this cause in Scripture? It caused some of the prophets to be rather reluctant as God called them to greatness. Moses resisted time and time again, but God answered every one of his challenges. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy. Uh, who am I to go into the presence of Pharaoh? And God answered, he said, don't worry about it. Surely I, I will go with you. But you see, I lack authority. You see, by whose name do I go? He said, don't worry. You go in the name of I am, who is the I am, the eternal self-existent one, Jehovah. But, but what, if, what if my people don't believe that, that, I, that the Lord has appeared to me? He said, don't worry, put, take, take that stick that you got in your hand, Aaron's rod, and throw it on the ground, and it became a snake. Now pick it up. That's where I think I would balk at my moment of destiny. And he picked it up and it became a stick. Put your hand in your cloak. Take it out, and it became leprous. Put it back in, and it was healed. And if that does not convince them, then you take the water from the Nile, and you dump it on the ground, and it will turn into blood. He gave them signs that they could be confident that Moses was God's man. But, but, but Lord, I'm not eloquent. And you know how he solved that. Don't worry. Your brother Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Jeremiah. Jeremiah protested. We read that before the worship service this morning. I am but a What? I'm but a youth. You say, I'm too young. How did God answer that? Do not say, I'm a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you, you will go, you will go, and all that I command you, you will speak, you will tell, you will recite. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Jonah <laughs> rebelled and fled out of hatred for Nineveh, the subjects to whom he was to proclaim the good news. And so God sent a storm, he sent a fish, and he gave Jonah a second chance to be persuaded of God's call. I think the message here is, friends, we should not be deterred. You see, this business 
of the missional call of God is risky business. You may feel like you're not fit for the task, but God equips you for the job that he has called you to perform. Whatever it is, whatever one of those functions it is, wherever you are in life, he has uniquely equipped each one of you to fulfill that mission to which he calls you. You're not too young, young people. And I might add the flip side of that, you're not too old. Those of us who are a little bit older, you're not unworthy. If God has forgiven you and cleansed you and sealed you with the fiery coals of his Holy Spirit, then you're worthy because the Lord Jesus Christ has made you worthy and sanctified for his purpose. Do not be intimidated by others' authority. God goes with you. Remember what he said to Moses. Remember what he said to Joshua. I will not fail you. I will never forsake you. Do not tremble. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, Jehovah Elohim, is with you wherever you go. When we do this, when we do this, this risky and dangerous business of gospel proclamation in a dark world, the standard is not human success. You see this with Isaiah. What is the standard? He calls us to go and to tell. And our responsibility isn't to succeed. Our responsibility is to do what? Help me, congregation. It's to what? It's to obey. It's to obey. To obey his call instead. Ezekiel was on the verge of protest. And in the second chapter, the Lord says to him, As for them, whether they listen or not, for they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. You see, success in the eyes of the Lord is obedience and reliance on, on his grace. The invitation hymn that we will sing in a few minutes is, Lord, here am I. And in that, we sing, willing my Savior to take up the cross, willing to suffer reproaches and loss, willing to follow if thou wilt but lead. Only support me with grace in my need. You see, we can do all things through him who strengthens us, Paul says. God's call is missional. God's call is risky. God's call is also personal. It's for you. This isn't just a general call. It's a personal call for you. This is based on several things. First of all, God's integrity. God never asks us to do something that he is not prepared to do himself. Think about that. God never asks you to do something that he is not prepared to you. So God sends us. God also did what? He sent his only son. In fact, God the son came amongst us and became the servant messenger that was, pro that was proclaimed and prophesied in Isaiah 42. God gave his only begotten son as a sacrifice to redeem us from sin and death because he lives. That's why we can do this. God sent his son, and he sends us. They call him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. 
He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. You see, he sent his son, and he sends us, sends us as well. So it's personal. It's related to his integrity. It's related to his personal identity. In this passage, we see a hint of the triune fellowship. You notice he says, who will go for us? Evidence of the Trinity is found in this passage in two places. Holy. It doesn't just say holy. It says what? Holy, holy, holy. That could be superlative. He is the holiest, but I think it is God is holy in three persons. Who will go for us? Some say that what's happening here is, you know, the seraphim are here, and then God appears, and then he's talking to the seraphim. Oh, who's going to go for us? As though he's frustrated and disappointed in the council, in the divine council. God is never frustrated in his, in his will. He's never frustrated in his purpose. And he consults with nobody and no angel about his plans. Isaiah tells us this. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and who instructed him? And who instructed him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? God needs to consult with no human nor angel, seraphim, or cherubim about his will. God's not talking to the angels, I believe. God's talking directly to Isaiah. And he's saying, we need somebody to send us. I think in this we see, as we have in other places in the Old Testament, hence of the Trinity in Genesis, the first chapter, let me make man in my image? No, let what? Us make man in our image. In the garden, after the sin, he says, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. At Babel, in Genesis, the 11th chapter, he says, Let us, let us go down and confuse their language, their hints of this triune fellowship, even in the Old Testament. And God's invitation is based on that. When we respond to God's call, we walk with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We worship Him by walking with Jesus Christ the Son in the Spirit to glorify the Father. Our call is a manifestation of our worship. We serve God by obeying His Son's Word guided by the Spirit. This is triune. It's based on a personal relationship and fellowship with a triune God. He walks with us along the way, every step, and directs our paths. It's based on God's love. You see this call and respect for us as persons. God does not need us to accomplish his mission, does he? No. Could God do this all by himself? Of course he could. He can accomplish it alone. But he desires something. He desires to engage us personally. He desires to engage you personally in a cooperative form of ministry. His call is an invitation. His call to you and to me is a privilege. He's inviting us to walk alongside him and worship him and to serve him as the king of kings. What a privilege that is to serve the king. It's based on God's desire to grow us spiritually. Why does God even ask the question of, of Isaiah? Why doesn't he just say, Isaiah, I chose you. He, he does that basically with Jeremiah. He does it with Moses. He does it with others. But here, I think there's a point that's to be made about how he deals with Isaiah. Why does he ask the question? Some say it's merely a rhetorical question. He's just speaking to the angels, as I said. No, he's speaking directly to Isaiah. I think, I think what this means is he wants Isaiah to make a choice. 
He gives him the choice to make. This is what we would call soul accountability. He wanted Isaiah to choose and to respond voluntarily and not to be coerced. He gave Isaiah the opportunity to serve him willingly out of personal responsibility. And he does that this morning. If you hear the still small voice of God stirring in your heart to respond to a certain kind of call, he is asking you to choose. He's not a despot. He's not a dictator. He gives us a will and he expects us to choose freely because he knows this. We serve more diligently and we serve more joyfully when we choose to do so. He loves a cheerful giver as we talk about in giving offerings. He also loves a cheerful servant. This is based on God's knowledge. It's a personal call because it's based on God's knowledge of you as a person and me as a person. You see, God knew the stuff that Isaiah was made of. He knew with whom he was speaking. He also knew the character and personality of Noah and then also of, I, of Moses and also of Abraham, each one. When he calls us, when he calls you, he knows who he's calling. He says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I have called you as a prophet to the nations before you were born. God knew that you would be sitting here this morning. Before you were even conceived, God knew that you would be at an appointed place and an appointed time in a worship service this morning where he would challenge you with something about your call. You see, it's personal. He knows what makes you tick. He knows the mission to which he's called you, and he knows how he has fitted you out to accomplish that. What is important, I think, in this third and next to the last point is this about it being personal is the importance of God's personal call. Respond, friends, to God's call. It's personal. Don't respond to other people's expectations of who they think you ought to be. Parents, friends, teachers, oh, they may echo God's call, then listen. But we must listen to God's call. We must listen to him and promise to do only what he calls us to do and the ministry that he has equipped you for. Remember, it's God alone who calls it is God alone who calls and equips. It is God alone who calls and equips and empowers you to do what he's called you to do. You see, this call is missional. It is risky. And it's personal. And last of all, God's call is compelling. It's even irresistible. You see, Isaiah responded to this personal encounter with God. How so? Well, at first, he saw God high and lifted up and unapproachable, and he became aware of his sin, his woeful state. But then what happened? In that confession, when he said, Well, am I, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm, I live amongst the people of unclean lips. That was a confession. We talked about that last week. Then God does what? He then forgives him, and he cleanses him, and he heals him, and he seals him with a fiery coal of his spirit. And then what happened? Then at that moment... God became near. Then at that moment, I, Isaiah could hear him. Then at that moment, he had the encounter with the Almighty God. And the transformation in Isaiah's life was huge. You see, the response was joyful. The response then compelled him. He didn't stand around and say, well, I can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you saw the Lord high and lifted up in here today, and then he spoke to you directly? How do you think you would respond? Oh, well, I'll give it, a, give it a thought. I'll let you know tomorrow. 
I'll send you a text or an email. No, what? You would be energized by that, as Isaiah was. You see, we can respond only, and we can receive this call only when we have encountered the living God. You see, it's compelling. We cannot hear God's call when there is a barrier of sin between us and him. We cannot speak purely for God until our lips have been purged. But once we have encountered the living God and we're cleansed of our unrighteousness and our lips then have been purified, then it's not we can, it is we are compelled to do what he calls us to do. You see, we've become so profoundly aware of our past sin and the blessed forgiveness of God that we're compelled with joy. If we don't feel that compelling drive in our lives, and sometimes we don't, friends. Sometimes we live the mundane existence that is shrouded in sin and we become deafened and we become blinded to God's call for us on a daily basis. What does that suggest? We have not had a recent encounter with the living God. The joy is gone. We need to be revived and restored. You see, it is then with great gladness of it because of his deliverance. He's filled with the joy of his salvation. He's consumed with passion to serve God, and he cannot help but speak. How can I keep from singing? My life flows on in endless praise above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far off, hymn that hails the new creation. Though all the tumult and strife through it all, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How? How can I keep from singing? You see, this is the inside-out dimension of worship. We gather here this morning to come and to worship him in his service. And when we do, most of us come kind of focused on ourselves, distracted by the sin in our life. And then, perchance, we might encounter the living God this morning. And he transforms us anew. And he fills us with the joy of service. And he draws us from the inside out to go out into the world, to go forth and to live and to speak for him. That is true worship. True worship is when we enter to worship and we serve him here by offering ourselves on the altar. And then we depart to serve by worshiping him, by walking with him every step of the way. That is unconditional worship. And he promises to do what? To go with us every step of the way, always, never to leave us. Our worshipful response to this compelling drive ought to be unconditional. We will walk by his side on the way. What he says, we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. God's call is missional. God's call for you this morning is risky, it's dangerous. He's going to call you into places to do things that you did not imagine before it's all over. God's call is personal, and God's call must be compelling. So let me close with how do we apply this. Two forms of worship. One is relational, and one is liturgical. In relational walk this morning if you're listening and God is speaking to your heart then he calls you no no Ephesians says that he called you 
He continues to call you, but he called you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless in him. He predestined you for adoption as one of his children through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. And he calls you this morning because he sent his son Jesus Christ to believe in him, to receive him as Lord and Savior, and to become his child. That's the relational response. That's the relational response of worship. And what do we do? We die to ourselves and we ask him to be Lord of our life. We take up the cross he gives us, the call that he gives each one of us, and we serve him and walk with him daily. That is the relational walk. And our response ought to be compelling. Compelling enough that it leads to the second dimension of worship, and that is the liturgical, the corporate worship. And on the bulletin last week, we talked about the beginning. We talked about confession. Today, we talk about the end. We come to the time of what? What do we call it? Invitation. We sing an invitation hymn. And if we have chosen And if we have pledged to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in that relational form of worship, then he calls us then to profess that faith, to come forward and to profess that we have accepted him as Lord and Savior, to make that profession public, to come forward and to make it known whether you walk down the aisle or whether you lean forward on that couch as you're watching today and you make that commitment to him. And someday then, hopefully, You come into a group of people like this, into a corporate body, and you make it known publicly. You know, we sang, come, ye sinners, poor and needy. How does it begin? I will rise, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are what? 10,000 charms. We invite you this morning to make that decision, to rise and go to Jesus wherever you may be. The time of invitation also is for those who want to join in the fellowship of the body with other believers, and they say, I have found a home. I have found a Christian home. This is the body of Christ where God is calling me to serve. And then you rise, and you come forward, and you join yourself with that body to serve him. Or it may be a time of invitation where God is calling you to that unique kind of service And you may stay in your pew and you may make that commitment to him or you may come forward and you may make it public. He may be calling you to be a herald, a preacher. He may be calling you to become one of those other uh, kinds of functions that we talked about earlier. He may be calling you to be a worker of the harvest, whatever it is. And you make that special commitment to come forward. Now is the time of invitation. And that invitation is where we express our compelling desire to serve him because he's called us. He's called us personally, and he wants to use us for his kingdom purpose. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, 
to embrace the world with Christ and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.